Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. My name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, look forward to being able to meet you. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Matthew. Uh, if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, we have started a journey through the gospel of Matthew, and we're going to continue on today in chapter 2. And we're going to jump right in and read the first 12 verses, and then we'll, uh, we'll pray and see what the Lord has for us this morning. But it's so good to see you. If you're using one of the chair Bibles, that's uh, page 757, kind of right. Uh, it's the very first book in the New Testament. Let's read together. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. This is God's Word. This is what it says to us. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until they came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. God, as we come again this morning to, to hear from you, uh, we look to your word to be to us what you promise it is, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And God, I pray that you open our hearts to what you want to teach us this morning that what we aren't, that you would make us through being together here, being in your word, that through the power of your spirit, you'd make us more like Christ. Uh, would you loosen our grip on the things of the world and give us a vision and a hunger for the things of heaven? Where we are confused, would you bring us clarity? Where we are discouraged, would you bring us encouragement through your promises? Would you help us to love you more? Increase our affection for the things of God. Increase our love for Jesus that we learned from you this morning. Help us to be both humble and hungry as we come to your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we spend a lot of our time on Sunday mornings uh, singing together. We devote a lot of time to it. Uh, we sing songs that have biblical truth in them and you often, Chris and I will collaborate during the week, and to the extent we're able, we'll try to, to pull out themes from the text that I'm preaching or whoever's preaching, 
and tie them into songs that seem to accentuate the same, the same note or theme from the text in the songs. And it's good for us to sing praises to God. Psalm 92 says it's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to his name. O most high is his name, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. So we do that through song. And sometimes we match the sermon with the song to strike a similar note. And for those of you who are musical, whether by training or just by delight in music, you know that a, a melody is significant to, to any song, right? A melody defined by Merriam-Webster is a, an agreeable or sweet sequence or arrangement of sounds, a rhythm of single tones organized as an aesthetic whole. So there's a consistency and predictability of the notes in a melody that make it both sweet and singable, singable and predictable. And the reason I'm, I'm bringing this kind of to the forefront as we start our time is because there's, there's a melody in the book of Matthew. And there's a, there's a note that continues to be hit. If the book were a piano, it would sound like a single note almost in every single page. You find the note, and the note is this, the king and his kingdom. You'll find some measure of reference or inference, connection you can make to that theme, that melody of the book, the king and his kingdom. That's where we're going to be really the entirety of our study through this book. And as we study these first couple chapters, which are kind of the introduction, familiar stories tied in with Christmas and Jesus' first coming. And we see even again this morning this same the same sound, the same note, that Jesus is the king of the kingdom. And we're going to continue to hear those notes, and I hope we don't grow tired of hearing those notes through the study of this book. So the first line says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So Bethlehem of Judea was a small town about six miles to the south of Jerusalem. If you were with us a couple months ago, we studied through the Old Testament book of Ruth. The word Bethlehem we saw means house of bread. So there's this unique picture that Jesus, who's called the bread of life, was, was born in a place called the house of bread. The city of Bethlehem is also known as the, the city of David. Jesus, at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, was called the son of David. David is the most famous Old Testament king, and God had given him a promise way back in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that there was going to be a particular descendant. He was going to have a son that would rule forever. There'd be no end to his throne or his kingdom or his dominion. It would exist forever because he had physical sons, namely Solomon, who continued but yet died. There was, there was another descendant that that promise meant to, to draw our attention to. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. He's the forever son that occupies the throne of David. He is the true and final son of David. Jesus is that long-awaited descendant. He's the long-expected ruler and king of the Jews. But as we, as we kind of think about this theme of kingdom, like it's good for us to remember that Jesus, the heavenly king, was born into a place where there was earthly rule. He was born into an earthly kingdom, as it were. Born into a time where the Romans ruled in Judea. The Jewish people were not ruled by a Jewish king. They were ruled by 
Caesar, the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus, on a more local level. They were ruled by King Herod, Herod the Great. We're going we're gonna to talk more about Herod the Great next week as we see him and his murderous plot killing the babies in Bethlehem in the area around Bethlehem. Today we're going to focus on the wise men and the, the, is the Jewish rulers. But as we study in, in chapter 1, we see more of this kind of private depiction of the birth of Jesus, more from the lens of the experience of Mary and Joseph, his earthly parents. And now in chapter two, the arrival of Jesus begins to go more public and the ripples become more apparent even at the beginning of his life. As a king of heaven, Jesus's arrival disturbed earthly kings and earthly kingdoms. As we study through this book, as you read the New Testament, like you realize really quickly that Jesus lived a life of mixed reviews. Not everybody loved Jesus. Not everybody welcomed him. Certainly not everybody welcomed him as king because he threatened those who wanted to hold the throne themselves or who actually occupied thrones of leadership in the culture. And I think it's good for us to remember like today this the same is true. Like we're confronted with the fact that Jesus is king. All of us to some degree have some part of us, maybe a significant part of us that should be rattled because we have to ask the question like, is Jesus king of me? Like is he the king of my life? Like everything about my life is Jesus the one who has the rule and the reign. Some people are glad subjects to his rule and others are rebels rebels to his throne. That has always been the case and will be the case until he returns and takes us to be with him and makes all things new. So the question I want us to consider these next two weeks, as you personalize this picture of kingdom, that Jesus is the king of the kingdom, I want you to answer the question that who is Jesus to me? That was a cent- probably the most important question in the Bible that Jesus asked the disciples. He's like, the people have opinions about me. Though the whole world is abuzz with opinions about my name. But he looks at them as it were and he says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Arguably the most important question in the whole Bible. Who is Jesus to you? And maybe most specifically, I'd say the question this way. Will I, will we seek the king or will we oppose him? And so we're going to look at that same question the next two weeks. Today we'll focus on the wise men and the religious leaders, and then next week we'll focus more on King Herod. So verse 1 and 2 says, These wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So most manger scenes, we know you might have one in your yard, or your yard or in your house, and it's okay if you do. They, they usually have Mary and Joseph and Jesus, and you got the animals, you got the shepherds, you got the angels, and you have the wise men. This is one moment scripturally where the Bible kind of confronts our misconceptions about particular details, because the wise men weren't there at the same time that the shepherds came at the initial moment of Jesus' birth. This is likely months, probably inside of two years, definitely, but probably months later after Jesus is born. Mary and Joseph and Jesus are in a home somewhere in Bethlehem. 
But the, the magi, as it were, this word means magi, wise men, came to Jerusalem. And they come with like this sense of eagerness. Like we've come to find the promised king, and it's almost like they expected everybody else to be as excited as they were. They came into Jerusalem, like the epicenter of Jewish culture. And we're here to find the one, the, the king of the Jews, like show us where he is. That's not really what happens. They're met with a different response from those that they talk to. But let me just talk a little bit about these wise men, because there's also, and we don't know a whole lot about these guys. There's a whole lot of things that have been said about them over history. But ultimately, what this word means, it's connected really to Babylonian and Persian and Mede culture. It was really connected to sorcery and astrology, magic, as it were. And so at the very least, we could say that these wise men, some believe they were kings. There's really no objective evidence to prove that. They were engaged in stargazing of some sort, whether it's scientists and astronomy or astrology, more of a pagan pseudoscientific pursuit. They paid attention to the stars. And God in his kindness used even that pagan pursuit to lead them to the, the Savior. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But they studied the stars. To the extent they used astrology, they studied the placement of stars in an effort to help them interpret things on the earth. It's not an endorsement of astrology. It's just a description of what was happening at the time. Astrology was and is a pagan practice. But it's good for us to remember that God testifies about who he is through what has been made, doesn't he? Like he, te he testifies of his glory through creation. Creation sings the glory of God. The stars tell of his greatness. So in a sense, there's no surprise that when you gaze at the stars and you study them, by God's grace, there's going to be moments where people are led to look for the one who designed the stars, who's behind the universe. The heavens, including the stars, declare the glory of God and are signals of how praiseworthy he is. And they had charted and studied countless stars, but this star, look in verse 2. I love this. It's very, well, it's, a, it's one word, but it's a significant word. Verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw what? His star. I want to draw attention to this as I've been kind of meditating on, praying about this section. One of the things that comes to mind for me is, is how closely linked ownership is to worship. That when you realize that God owns everything, He holds the title to everything, when you recognize that, you either worship Him or you rebel against Him. And so when these men, these wise men from the East, recognize that this star belongs to this king of the Jews, what do they do? They rightly come to worship. They come to worship. Ownership is central to worship. Psalm 95, verses 1 through 7 says this. It says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, 
and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Ownership is central to worship. It's his grace. It's his glory. This is his church. We are his people. The gifts we have are gifts that he's entrusted to us by his enablement. We serve. We serve with the strength that he provides. All those things that all points to him. Everything is his. Everything is his. Ownership is central to worship. Now, some of you may be into CSI. Some of you may be into Scooby-Doo. But both of those, they have something in common, because in both of those cases, the person who's guilty is incriminated by some sort of evidence. There's some incriminating evidence that proves that they're the guilty party in the crime. When you look at the Bible, the incriminating evidence in the case against humanity is found in Romans 1, 18 through 32. There's a lot that could be said here. But ultimately, I'd say this. The case against human beings is a kingdom issue. The case against men and women across the world, every one of us included, is a kingdom issue. And it's summed up in this. God is the king, but we don't want to be his subjects. That is the case against humanity. And you could say it this way, that the incriminating evidence against human beings is that our fingerprints have been left behind on the throne of our lives that we have so tightly held to that we don't want to give God control over. And those fingerprints are the incriminating evidence that we have, in fact, rebelled against God. We're guilty of treason before the God of the universe. When we talk about ownership, that really is the picture. Ultimately, all of us have gone astray. Like Romans 1, 18 32 gives this heavy case an unbreakable case against human beings that even though creation testifies of the divine power of God and his handiwork, that we suppress the truth and unrighteousness because we don't want to be ruled by God. Instead of worshiping God, we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Even though his law is written on our hearts, we don't honor him or give thanks to him. We're incriminated by our own fingerprints as we have held on to the throne of our lives So the question then again becomes, will I seek Jesus as my king or will I oppose him? The wise men, when they came, they came seeking Jesus and they came seeking to worship Jesus. And we could learn much from them. But obviously there's more reactions to the news that they brought, the questions that they asked. Verse 3, when Herod heard the king, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. So we usually infer that these wise men just rolled in like a three-person crowd. It's likely there was more. Seemingly, it's kind of inferred a little bit. But the fact that all Jerusalem was in an uproar, troubled by this news, seems to indicate there was probably a bigger group than just three of these wise men who came around asking about the king of the Jews. So it didn't just shake the king. It shook all of Jerusalem. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him. There's some things about us and our lives that will be true from beginning to end. So from beginning to end, when I started having kids 
And when I ended up having six daughters, I will forever get the question of like, you were trying for that boy, huh? It's like, no, we just had six daughters. We actually enjoyed it. Or maybe because I'm tall, like usually the question is like, hey, did you play basketball? I did, but you get the point. I don't ask short people what they do. <laughs> it's just one of those things from beginning to end, you just get the question, right? And you might get your own version of whatever question you get, but like from beginning to end, there's certain things that are true about our experience. And from beginning to end, Jesus caused a stir. From the very first moment he came, he caused a stir. At the beginning of Jesus' life, wise men came to worship him and it troubled those in Jerusalem. Look at this connection too. When you think about this, at the end of Jesus' life, he would enter this same city and some would worship and some would be troubled. In Matthew chapter 21, verses 9 through 11, this is Palm Sunday. Jesus came into Jerusalem and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. There's that title again. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. But at that moment as well, the religious leaders were troubled. They told Jesus to tell people to stop singing his praises. But he deserved the praise. And the shared concern between the Roman leaders like King Herod and these leaders in this moment upon the arrival of Jesus is a foreshadowing of the joint resistance of those two parties the Romans and the Jewish leaders all the way to the end of Jesus' life. And so King Herod must have had enough familiarity with the Jewish prophecy of the Messiah that was to come where he pulled together the Jewish leaders in somewhat of a little Bible study. And he asked them the question, verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, this anointed one, this Messiah was to be born. And these religious leaders quoted the Old Testament in Micah chapter 5, one of the many places that foretell the, the details of the coming Messiah, Micah 5, 2, they read, he's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. So as you read the zeal of the wise men to find the king who was born, you get the, you get the, the sense that they expected among them, these religious leaders and others, to be just as excited as they were, but that wasn't the case but these religious leaders, like, they had the promises. Like, they had the signposts. They, they knew the details. They quoted the Old Testament. They knew where the Christ was going to be born. But they chose not to worship him. They didn't go. They commended with some measure of clarity to Herod and to those who were present where the Messiah was to be born, but they didn't pursue him even though they had the knowledge. Warren Wiersbe points out these Jewish leaders were quick to point other people to Christ, but they did not go themselves to worship him. They studied about the king, but they didn't seek him when he came. In my former life, vocationally, I worked for State Farm Insurance. I handled claims for State Farm for a number of years. 
And one of the things I, I handled, I handled liability claims. So one of the things I would see is I would see, sometimes I would see people's trees fall on their neighbor's stuff. And sometimes in these moments, <clears throat> you'd have a tree that looked outwardly healthy, but was dying from the inside out. And so a wind comes along and it knocks over the tree, but there's really no evidence that would have alerted anybody to the fact that it was a risk to anybody. There was an inward decay that wasn't evident on the outside, the healthy veneer hiding the decay inside. There was a slow, hidden decay that leads to destruction. Remember our question, will I seek the king or will I oppose the king? When you and I think about our opposition, here's one thing I'd encourage you to consider as you evaluate your heart. It's like our indifference and apathy can be of the veneer of our deep opposition to God. So you can have on the outside the knowledge, the exposure to truth, some of the details of Jesus and who he is, but yet on the inside there's no, there's no life. And that was really the primary exhortation and admonishment that Jesus gave the religious leaders, that you're like a, a whitewashed tomb. You look good on the outside, but inside you're like dead man's bones. There's no life there. You're dying from the inside out. I think one of the things is we consider these religious leaders who are a little bit of a, a little bit more of a quiet character in this story is that ultimately you see indifference and apathy as really the veneer of their opposition. Herod's opposition is much more clear, but both are destructive. And so you can, you can go to church your whole life, but not have life. Like you can learn a lot about Jesus, but not actually know Jesus is possible. It's one of the most dangerous places to be in many ways because you're inoculated to your need for the very thing that Jesus alone can supply. Indifference and apathy are often the veneer of our opposition to God. And Jesus constantly pointed these religious leaders, I mentioned this last week, to him. He talks about Abraham. He says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham pointed to him. He talked about Moses to the religious leaders. He said this in John 5, 46, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. The whole Bible is intended to lead you to Jesus. The whole Bible is intended to lead you to this baby king, this king Jesus. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. The whole Bible is a signpost leading you to him, leading me to him. When you're led to Jesus, the question is, will you seek to know him and not merely know about him? Will you surrender to him? Will you submit your whole life to him? Whatever shared concern these religious leaders had with Herod at the outset is now completely muted in the background of Herod's escalating zeal, and we'll get there more next week. In verse 7, it says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly. He's like, hey, go search diligently for the child. I want to know where he is so I can come and worship. We see later in chapter 2 that was not his motivation. In fact, he wanted to kill Jesus, not come worship him. In verse 9, this is where we'll finish this morning. We see the culmination of these wise men and their journey to find this baby king. In verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen 
at the first, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. We don't know all the details. There's some measure this star guided them to Bethlehem supernaturally and led them ultimately to the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. What a sight it must have been. These grown men coming down and laying at the foot or at the head of the baby king. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Here's what I'll close with this morning. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He says, those who look for Jesus will see him. Those who truly see him will worship him. And those who worship him will set apart and give their lives to him. Those who look for Jesus will see him. Those who truly see him will worship him. And those who worship him will set apart and give their lives to him. Centuries ago, this star rose in the sky as a spotlight pointing the wise men to the king. Here's one thing I'd say. Today, we still need supernatural help to find Jesus but it's more than likely not going to be a star in the sky that leads us to where he is. But there's all sorts of references as it relates to light, the way in which God uses particular things to shine the reality of who Jesus is in a world that desperately needs to know him. Here's a few brief things I would say. It's the word of God, the word of God that's a lamp to lead us to the king. Last week I quoted from Second Peter, this picture that, hey, we have this real experience of encountering the, the transformed Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. Peter's talking about that. He said, we do better to pay attention to the word of God because that's like a lamp shining in a dark place. Pay attention to that. If you want to seek to know Jesus and understand who he is and the grace that he supplies so freely, and go to the word of God, which is truly a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. His revealed word, displaying who he is, preserved for you that you might find him in a dark place. It's the word of God. It's the people of God shining as a light in a world that's lost and blind. We're going to see later in the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. He looks at us. You can hear it preaching to you as you read it. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they would see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Your life is a light to lead people to the King. And you see that. So we see the light of the Word of God. We see the light of the people of God. We see the illuminating work of the Spirit of God. That in a dark place and in dark hearts, that just like God spoke in the beginning and brought light into darkness, the Spirit of God is the one who speaks into human hearts and shatters hardness and takes away blindness that men and women and children might see, apprehend, they might have a knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's the Spirit of God and the people of God and the Word of God that lead people to the Son of God. And will you seek Him? 
But will you subtly or overtly oppose him in your life? Here's the wonder and the beauty of how in the Bible these two things are mixed. Our desperate need for God to work on our behalf, even for us to believe. But yet the call to believe. Like left to myself, I wouldn't seek God. I demonstrated that for 21 years. But for God's initiative in my life, I would, I'd refuse him still. But the call is still the same from Jesus. Come. Come, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come, thirsty, drink of me and be satisfied. Come if you're hungry. I'll feed you and you'll never be hungry again. Come, believe, trust, surrender, seek, and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Come to me. And family, this is such a Beautiful picture, too, how Jesus is the king, not only of the Jews, but of all nations. Every person, every tribe, every nation, every race, every language, rescued by King Jesus. All those who seek, who find Jesus, will rejoice exceedingly with great joy when they encounter this good and gracious king. Some people debate whether or not the Magi were exiled Jews. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the story. They seem to be Gentiles. The the word comes to Jew first, then to Gentile, the non-Jews. But it's notable, most of us, if not all of us, are Gentiles, non-Jews, and God has opened the door for us to be a part of his family through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The journey of these wise men was long, it was difficult, and it was dangerous. But at the end of the journey, they found themselves in the presence of the king, the one that they searched for. And when they found him, they worshiped him, and they laid their gifts at his feet. If you're a Christian in this room, there's a way in which that's a beautiful picture of what your life is like. This life is long, it can be really hard, and the journey can feel like you're moving a great distance to find God. But there will be a point at the end of this journey that seems so long, where what you now know in part and through promise you will know in full, and you will stand before your God, and you will worship him in spirit and in truth in everything about you, all the good that God allowed you to do for him, you'll lay at his feet like a gift at the altar as tokens of your adoration of your king. And there's a way in which our life right now is supposed to be the same way, like day by day, laid down. Like here I am to worship. is not just a melody. It's an anthem for the believer. Like present your lives, your lives, everything about you to God as your spiritual service of worship. Do it now and you will do it in the end joyfully submitted and protected by your king in the end. And I love the fact that they gave these unique gifts. I'm not going to get into the symbolism of the gifts. I don't know. There's a whole lot of validity to that. But what I do know is that each of these individuals brought a unique gift from where they were from. 
unique to them. And you, as an individual follower of Jesus Christ, have a unique contribution to the kingdom of God in this world to offer to your king. Will you seek him? Will you serve him? Or will you oppose him? Will you fight against him? Will you fail to walk by faith and to trust him to step out to use those gifts But family, Christians in this room, this life is a journey. Often difficult, but in the end, it's going to be worth it. We'll one day stand before the king, lay our gifts, our lives down before him, lay our crowns at the feet of the one who alone is worthy of praise and adoration. And if I could just finish with this statement, like when we get there, when we stand before God, there will be a day where God's going to make everything new. And one of the... One of the things I enjoy most about the the picture of what heaven will be like is the picture of light. Because there's no signposts anymore. There's no secondary, secondary sources of light. Because God himself and his glory is the light in that place. Let me read this to you from Revelation 21 that captures the end of the story and highlights that very thing. It says, and I saw no temple in the city. It's a new Jerusalem. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And listen to this part. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, all of the delegated earthly glory that kings possess will be brought into the presence of the one true king, and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nation. That's the hope of the believer. If you're here in this room, and maybe you sense maybe there's something of your reaction to all of this where you're like, I don't know where I stand with God. I want you just to hear really clearly from me. The only way that you can know you're right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. The Bible is clear about that. It's by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. That is it. And so my response to whatever reaction you may have, a question in your heart is, will you seek him or will you oppose him? Will you seek him or will you oppose him? And I think the Bible would support this. The decision is yours. The work of God, he does through his spirit. But this, the decision is yours. Believe. Come to him today. Answer the question by completely surrendering your life to him. Watch if he'll be true to his word. To save and secure and forgive and ultimately to bring you home in the end. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. God, will we be those, will we be among the number in the nations who seek you? There wouldn't be any even subtle portion of our lives that's not submitted to you where we oppose you. Would you rid us of any indifference or apathy? May we never be lukewarm would all of us be submitted to you. 
you are worthy of it all. And you're worthy of it all, God. It's good to give you thanks. It's good to praise your name, O Most High. From the rising of the sun into its setting, your name is to be praised. Blessing and honor, authority and power and dominion are yours before all times and now and forever. Where our lives lived, reflect that we have submitted ourselves to you as our good and gracious King. And I pray for your people, those who have been captivated by a love for Christ, rescued by your grace, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I pray, God, that you'd help us to be men and women fully submitted to you. That where we feel the nearness of our failure, that your grace would pick us up again. That we'd feel empowered by the resurrection. That we have everything we need to live a life that pleases you. God, if there's anyone in this room that's never surrendered to you, I pray that if familiarity keeps them at arm's length, that you would crush the deception of familiarity with Jesus and replace it to com- with complete surrender to him. Jesus, thank you that you paid it all. So all to you we owe. You are great and greatly to be praised. You are great and greatly to be praised, and your your grace is great, greater than all of our sin. We love you. We thank you for the time we've had in your word, and would you continue to instruct us through it? Help us be men and women, children who seek you this week as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen.